0: Let's turn together in God's word to Psalm 23. My rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Our text this morning is verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. Beloved congregation and our Lord Jesus Christ, it's been relatively easy to confess the words of Psalm 23, the beautiful words of Psalm 23, along with the psalmist. With the Lord my shepherd, I shall not lack any good thing. With the Lord my shepherd, I shall have my belly filled with the green pastures of His grace and mercy that I so need to thrive I shall have my thirst quenched with the still waters of his word and spirit. I shall walk in whatever paths he leads me, for he only leads me in the paths of righteousness. Verses 1 through 3 paint for us a rather sublime picture. No wonder the psalm is so loved. This relationship of care between the shepherd and his sheep is foundational to all of our faith as Christians, and we will gladly trust. In the shepherd who gives us life in the sunshine, in the green pastures, by the still waters. But the psalm doesn't end with verse 3. The time comes for the shepherd to rouse his sheep from their grazing in the sunlight, it's time to move. It's time to find new pastures and new waters, and there will be a bit of a journey before we arrive at this new location. So the sheep begin to move as the shepherd calls to them and gently prods them with his staff. Slowly they follow him in the direction of the hills and the mountain range, and soon they find themselves standing on the precipice. Looking down into this dark and foreboding valley. The shadow cast by the mountains hides the face of the sun from view and shrouds everything in darkness. There's no other way than through this valley, says the shepherd. You trust him now? The psalmist does, and the Christian does, as he puts these words on his lips. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I call our attention to the text under the theme No Fear of Evil in Death's Dark Veil. First, we will identify this confession that the psalmist makes and that we make along with him secondly the reason why he can make that confession with such confidence and then finally we'll conclude by noting that this is a walk a walk through this valley and that we must walk through that valley no fear of evil and death's dark veil first the confession second the reason finally the walk Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. When I read those words, I can't help but think of David, who wrote them. You imagine there were no questions in David's mind as he walked down, down, down into the valley of Elah. And as he looked into the face of that giant Philistine, And saw hatred written there and mockery. Do you think it didn't cross David's mind that all of the best men in Israel's army were about out of their minds with fear at the thought of facing that giant? And here he was, a young man with a stick in his hand and a strap of leather he called a sling and a few stones in his bag on his hip. Do you really think Goliath's taunts simply glanced off David without leaving a mark? Come to me, the, the giant says, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals, the beasts of the field are going to devour you. David, I'm going to kill you. That's what the giant said. I'm going to make all of your boasts about the Lord's help look like utter nonsense and folly. I'm going to make all those soldiers up there watch as I tear you to pieces, limb from limb. And here your body is going to remain forever, down here in this valley. You're never going to make it out of this valley. This is the valley of death for you, David. To walk through the valley that the psalmist is describing here is to come face to face with destruction. The shadow of death refers to the deepest and darkest part of the night. Darkness. Thick darkness. The kind of darkness that fell over Egypt in the ninth plague that was so heavy, the Bible says you could feel it. It's the kind of darkness that we will all face at the end of our life on this earth. To die is like falling into darkness. It's like falling backwards into something you cannot see. It includes some pain. It includes separation from loved ones. It includes the breakdown of your body. And it's darkness. It's a valley. It's the valley of the shadow of death. It brings us face to face with destruction, with the end. But it's not only at the end of life that we face the valley of the shadow of death as our creeds make plain. The whole of this life, in some ways, is nothing but a continual death. We're going to read that tonight in the baptism form. The whole of this life is nothing but a continual death, a continual passing through this valley of tears. A continual exercise in futility as the things that we build rust and decay or are stolen by the robbers who break through. A continual battle with sin as we take one step forward only to take two steps back again and again and again. A continual series of temptations. A continual series of trials and suffering and tears and disappointments. You find yourself alone and friendless because you've burned all of your bridges. You get the news that those symptoms that you've been experiencing indicate that you now have a chronic, life-altering condition. You sit there feeling used and rejected on an ash heap without anybody to support you. Or you just find yourself in darkness for apparently no reason, feeling empty and worn out. That's life in a fallen world. Life in a cursed world in which all of life is really just a continual breaking down of all of the things that otherwise make us happy. A continual emptying out. A continual wearing down. Until the silver cord is broken, as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, and the Spirit flies back to God who made it. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And all of this can start to get to us as we live in this world of death. It can make us feel cynical, bitter, bitter even angry like Jonah, running away from God till he's thrown overboard, sinking into the waves until he's closed about by those awful jaws of that fish that God had prepared to swallow him up and then out of the belly of hell, he says, he cries out to God. Living in this valley of tears, the valley of the shadow of death, can lead to despair like Elijah who collapsed with weariness under the juniper tree out in the wilderness and just asked God, Let it my end. Let me die, O God, for I am not better than my fathers. It can lead to fear and terror. If this is life, if this is what it's like in the real world, the world where everything goes to pieces, where everybody around me, including myself, is a sinner. What's going to happen to me when I fall backward into that unknown darkness, that void of death? What's down there in that valley? And how will I ever make it through? But through you must go. There is no other way than through. There's no going around the valley or over it or underneath it. You must go through. There's no deliverance for Israel. There's no King David leading God's armies to victory over the Philistines and over her enemies and building up the kingdom. That doesn't happen unless the shepherd boy picks up his stick and his strap of leather and his five stones and goes down in the valley and faces the giant And there's no coming out of the valley unless he gets through that giant. You must go through. That's the pattern. Not only for David, that's the pattern for the people of God who live in this cursed and fallen world. There is no other way but through. There is no tasting of redemption unless you come face to face with the reality of your sin and what that sin deserves. Death. Judgment. Curse! There is no growth in patience and Christian character unless you go through trials, unless you face disappointments, unless you experience suffering. There is no entering into glory unless you fall into that unknown doorway called death. You must go through. There is no other way but through, through the valley of the shadow of death. So the psalmist describes it. Knowing what that valley is then, how serious it is, how dreadful, should make it a bit of a shocker when we hear this confession coming out of the mouth of the psalmist. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That's an amazing confession. Now, that does not mean there is nothing to fear at all. And that does not mean that the psalmist is without emotion and is unable to experience fear as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. I was reading a novel not too long ago. The setting of the novel was Europe during the First World War. And in the novel, the protagonist meets a soldier who is fearless. And he's fearless to the point where he runs into the various battles, bullets, flying, bombs exploding, and it seems to not faze him at all. It seems to not trouble him at all. In fact, he seems like he's in his element, as if danger is what he enjoys. Danger is where he wants to be. He's fearless. And the point is, To be utterly fearless in that way isn't really a virtue. When you read that story and you encounter that character, you can't help but question the man's sanity. Does he really know what he's up against? Does he really know what he's facing? Does he really care? Does he have any emotion at all? Is he even a man? There's nothing wrong with you if you feel afraid sometimes. There might be something wrong with you if you don't ever feel afraid under any circumstances. Look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Look at the sweat dropping from His face, mingled with blood, as He thinks on the cup that He must drink, a cup that earnestly He is praying to His Father, let this cup pass from Me. And though he submitted himself to his Father's will, he meant what he said in that prayer. Let this cup pass from me, if it be possible. Jesus was not afraid of soldiers coming to arrest him. Jesus was not afraid of Caiaphas. He was not afraid of Pilate. He was not afraid of the Jews. He was not afraid of the crowds that cried out to crucify him, and who mocked him and jeered at him. He was not afraid of the Roman soldiers who beat him up or put that crown of thorns on his head. He was not even afraid of the cross as such. He was not afraid of dying as such. He was not afraid of the tomb as such. But don't tell me that there was no fear in him as he contemplated the darkness that he knew was coming for him. He was a real man. There was fear. There was more than fear. Read Lord's Day 16, which describes the dread, the horror, the anguish of mind, the stress in his body that the Lord felt as he anticipated, the awful suffering that he must endure on the cross. And with good reason did he feel those things. On the cross, hell closed its jaws around him, plunged him into the deepest and the darkest part of the valley of the shadow of death. On the cross, the worst thing that could possibly ever happen to the Son of God happened to Him as His Father turned His face away and forsook Him so that He cried out in the darkness, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? There are things to be afraid of in a broken and fallen world, and that's not always a sign of weakness. Nor is it a sign of sin. Nevertheless, the psalmist confesses and he teaches us to confess these words Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, he's not talking about moral evil there. He's talking about evil the way Job spoke of evil as he sat on a pile of ashes, scraping the boils that broke out in his skin with a broken piece of pottery. His wife comes to him and tells him, Job, why do you keep your integrity? Just curse God and die. Give in to despair. Give in to hopelessness. And Job replies in Job 2, verse 10, What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? That's the way the Bible describes the kind of personal calamities that entered into the life of Job. These were evils. These were effects of the fall and the curse that was put on the world because of the fall. Losing your children in an accident, an accident as Job did, is an evil. It's painful. It hurts. Losing your entire livelihood due to natural disasters, as we speak of them, is an evil. Losing your health, breaking down, breaking out in some terrible disease, is an evil. It's part of going through the valley of the shadow of death. It's part of coming face to face with destruction. Nevertheless, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil He writes that in the future tense. Which means he's looking ahead. He's peering down into that valley and he's looking through that valley and he's declaring about that valley, I know that there's a way through. I know that there are evils down there. There are dangers down there and threats. Things that will bring pain and suffering in my life. But I know that there is light on the other side. There's nothing down in that valley ultimately that can harm me, ultimately that can destroy me. And therefore, though I walk through that valley right under the shadow of death, I will not fear it. I will not allow the darkness and terror of that valley to keep me from pressing on, to keep me from walking through. I will go. It's an amazing confession. Is it not? It's a supernatural confession is what it is. It's a confession that can only ever arise out of a true and living faith in God, in Jehovah, in the shepherd of the sheep. The faith that God Himself kindles and inflames and causes to grow in the hearts of his children. That's the only reason David was able to put one foot in front of the other as he walked down into that valley of Elah to face that giant and to defy his challenge. That's the only way he was able to get those words out in answer to Goliath. You come to me with a sword and a spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Think of that. Again, beloved, it's not that David had no fear as he went down to face the giant. There was fear in him. He was human. And he was facing something that looked insurmountable. Nevertheless, he knew. He knew he was going to kill that giant in that valley. He knew that he was going to come out of the other side of that valley holding that giant's head in his hand. He knew those, that giant's taunts were empty words, even though he was armed to the teeth with a sword and a spear the size of a weaver's beam. David knew no evil will ultimately harm me in the valley of the shadow of death, and therefore I will not fear it. I will face it. I will go down. Why can he make that confession, and why can we make that confession, beloved? And the answer is given in the text For thou art with me. For thou art with me. Don't we put ourselves through torment so often? Mental and emotional anguish. We face the operating table. And we can hardly sleep because we're anxious about being put under and wondering what the doctors are going to do to me. What I am under. And what's going to happen. We think of the future. We imagine all the possible ways in which trouble could come into our lives or into the lives of our children. We look at our present situation. We become bitter maybe. We become upset because things didn't turn out the way we thought they would or the way we wanted them to. We become afraid. We become unsettled. We become anxious. Like the sheep that we are. Remember? That's the image. Sheep. Easily startled. Easily upset. And we become afraid And all of this as if Jehovah God were not at all times before us and behind us and beneath us and on either side of us. What did Moses say? The eternal God is thy refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Deuteronomy 33, verse 27. He's with you. He's with you. He's with you with all the power that He possesses as the God who gave you life and being and existence in the first place. That surgeon cannot so much as move a finger without the will of our Heavenly Father who is with us. The cells in your body cannot divide and multiply or mutate into cancer apart from His purposes. He knows the future And he knows the future backwards and forwards because he declared it with his own mouth. And he's the one who's executing it and bringing it to pass, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah 46. And he's with you. He's with you. He's with you as the sovereign shepherd who knows every one of his sheep by name, knows where they come from, knows where they've gone, knows where they're going knows them inside and out. He's with you as that gentle shepherd Isaiah 40 describes who gathers the lambs in His arms and who gently leads those who are with young. He's with you. What do you have to be afraid of? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And as He is with you, before you and behind you, beside you, beneath you. As He's with you, He's also for you. He's not just standing with you, indifferent to your plight and uninterested. He's not a passive bystander who just happens to be nearby. He's for you. Which means He has you in His mind all of the time He has your name written on the palm of his hand so that every time he needs to remind himself of something, there's your name written there, etched there so that it can't ever be erased. You are his sheep. His sheep whom he purchased and he loves you. If there's anything that our convictions concerning the sovereign and unconditional covenant of grace should impress upon us, it's this, he loves me. Absolutely, He loves me. He loves me with such a powerful love that that love actually reaches out to me and draws me near to Him irresistibly. He loves me with such a powerful love that His love actually fills me with a sense of His presence. He sheds His love abroad in my heart by His Spirit. As the Apostle says in Romans 5, He loves me with such a powerful love, a divine love, that the very idea that his love would not achieve its purpose is laughable. He loves me. He loves you. Don't you know that? And if you're ever tempted to doubt that, if you say, oh no, Not me. Not miserable, wretched, defiled, shameful, and ugly me. How could He love me? I'm unlovable. I'm unlovable even to other people. And how could the God who created this whole beautiful world, how could that God love me? Surely He only means to lead me into this valley of the shadow of death and then leave me there. That's what I deserve. If you think that way, then you need to remember how it is that the Good Shepherd came to be with us in the first place. Because He didn't have to be. He could have stayed where He was in the light in the warmth, in the glory of heaven, far from danger, far from weary toil, far from fear, far from the shadow of death. But He chose to come to us as light into the darkness. He chose to enter the valley of the shadow of death and to face the worst of it. He chose to lay down His life for His sheep, His fearful, anxious, needy, sinful, in themselves ugly and defiled sheep. He chose the way of the cross because He knew that we were unlovable, because He knew that we were defiled. And He decided to take steps to deal with that. He loves you. If there's anything that the cross proves, beloved, it's that. Believe it. Believe it. He loves you. And in his love for you, he chooses to be with you as you walk through the valley, and not only to be with you, but to make his presence known to you. And he makes his presence known to us through visible signs and seals. I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. The rod and staff are symbols of the shepherd's presence. They point to the fact that the shepherd is there, that he's with his sheep. The rod is a symbol of his protection and of his corrective discipline. Philip Keller in A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 describes the use of the rod. and to stick that... A young shepherd in training would select and then fashion into one of the tools of the trade. The one end would be fashioned into a handle and the other end would be fashioned into a bulb and hardened so that that rod could serve as a kind of club. It was likely with such a rod in his hand that David went and took on that lion and that bear that went and threatened his father's sheep when he was a shepherd boy The rod was used by the shepherd to fight off predators who came prowling against the sheep. Or, if any sheep are erring away from the flock and need to be corrected and brought back, sometimes that rod would be sent for a ride and it would poke that sheep and send them back into the flock to protect and to discipline. That's what the rod was used for. The staff was a symbol of more gentle direction and guidance. The staff has a crook on one end specifically designed for hooking and drawing. A little lamb who is wandering away from his mother can be gently hooked by the end of that staff and led back to his mother, or he can receive his mother's milk once again. A sheep who falls into a stream while taking a drink can be fished out with a staff. But what's most important about these tools is not what they do, although what they do is important, but what's most important about these symbols is what they point to, and what they point to is the presence of the shepherd. And if I feel that staff pressing against my side, guiding me along, I know something, and what I know is the shepherd is nearby, using that staff for my good. Even if I feel a poke from the rod, which somewhat painfully corrects me, that still points to the fact that the shepherd is there, that he cares for me. He doesn't want me wandering off into a place where I might be in danger. And I know that he will use that same rod if necessary to drive off the wolves or to strike them down. Thy rod and thy staff, these are visible indicators and signs that the shepherd is with me and that's why they comfort me. Well, the Lord has given us visible signs And seals as well, beloved. The Lord's Supper is closely connected to the discipline of the church. Exclusion from the table is a rod of correction to erring Christians who must be brought to repentance. It also serves as a defensive weapon, you might say, to expose and to drive out the hypocrite from the church. The Lord's Supper also provides gentle and loving guidance to all of the sheep as they live their Christian lives, much like the shepherd's staff. Observing the sacrament of the Lord's Supper results in the Christian searching his conscience or her conscience as we are prompted to examine our lives, and it's not just our own willpower that causes us to search and examine ourselves, but the Spirit who sheds His illuminating light into our hearts and shows us our sins and shows us where we have need for growth. The Lord's Supper is used by the Lord to correct us in our priorities as we are reminded again of the seriousness of sin that required the body of the Lord to be broken and His blood shed that we might be delivered from the curse that was due to us. The Lord's Supper serves to confirm our faith as we are given to eat and to drink. But most importantly, what the Lord's Supper does is it signifies that He's here. The Shepherd is here. It's confirmation to the believer that the Shepherd has not forgotten Him, His little sheep. He gives us visible signs, visible symbols to mark for us, to make visible for us the spiritual reality that we confess together in this psalm, which is simply this, Thou art with me. The shepherd is with me. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, especially in the valley of the shadow of death, Thou art with me. And having that comfort, the sheep can look down into that valley and they can take a step forward and another step and another step. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's significant. You do have to walk and keep walking following the shepherd until you come through. It simply won't do just to stay put. It simply won't do just to stay on the precipice looking down and then drawing back. It simply won't do just to sit down on that ash pile forever and stay there hanging your head and crying because it hurts. You have to walk. You have to put one foot in front of the other, and walk. and Keep on walking. A lot of the messaging that comes from the world today is saying something else. Don't keep walking. If you've been hurt, don't keep walking. Dwell on it. If you've been made to suffer, you need to medicate that suffering. Medicate it by the parties you go to by the alcohol that you drink, with the pills the doctor prescribes perhaps. If you are in the valley of death's shadow, don't walk. Don't keep moving. Just learn to cope with it. This is reality. This is all there is. What's the use of walking? What's the use of hoping that you will ever come through this valley to something better? There is nothing better. There is nothing to hope for. There is no getting through the valley. There is only this brief moment of our existence. These few years that we have here, which all serves as a a short prelude to death and destruction in darkness. That's the secular worldview, beloved. That's the worldview of many people around us today. It's a worldview of many in our culture today, and we call it secular, but it's really pagan, and it's hopeless. It's a worldview of death. The psalmist speaks of walking. Walking, yea. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Which means I will walk. I will put one foot in front of the other. Sometimes I'm going to be going a little bit faster. Sometimes I'm going to be going a little bit slower. But I will walk. Which means I will live life as a Christian pilgrim ought to live life. Showing love to my neighbor. Exercising mercy. Seeking and loving the truth. I will seek to do good to my neighbor and to many, as many as I have opportunity. And I will do that even though sometimes it feels like there's no point. What's the point of doing this good work over here or over there? It's not noticed. It's not, it doesn't seem to do anything. But I'll do it anyway. I'll walk. And I'll keep walking. And I'll have hope. I'll have hope that there's more to it than this. I'm going to come through this valley When I fall through that that void, that unseen darkness, which is death, I'm going to come to something on the other side. There's going to be a table prepared for me there. There's going to be glory prepared for me there. Goodness and mercy that will follow me all the days of my life as I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm not afraid of the valley of the shadow of death or any evil that may befall me there. I'll make it through, and I'll make it through because I'm not alone, but Thou art with me. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for putting that supernatural confession in our mouths and in our hearts. Well, Father, how can we confess these things, that I will have no fear only by Thy grace, only if Thou art with us, only if we can do so through the name of Jesus Christ, who went to the deepest and darkest part of the valley of the shadow of death to deliver us from any evil that could ultimately destroy us. We pray, O Father, let the sign and the seal of Thy presence be a confirmation for us this morning a visible and spiritual indicator that Thou art indeed with us and that we can walk, therefore, through the valley. Forgive our sins and hear our prayer for Jesus' sake.